Hey, good morning, everybody. Everybody doing well? All right. Good, good. Uh, thanks for being here. Really appreciate it. There's still some people standing in the back. If you want to find seats, there are some seats next to people. If you're not sitting there because they look scary, I guarantee you they're not. They just may look at it a little bit. No, no. If you, if you need a seat, come find a seat. Um, we've got a lot of work to do today in the next 30 minutes. So are you ready? Are you ready to be with me here? Because we've got a lot. We're going to go through the whole book uh, the whole chapter, not the whole book, the whole chapter two of the book of Galatians. We're in this series called Contrast. And I got to tell you that today we are not talking about just a difference of opinion. In, in Christianity, in the world, there are lots of different opinions on lots of different things. And that's okay. It's okay that we have people with different opinions, churches with different opinions. Those kind of things are okay. There's not going to be homogeneity. It's not going to be exactly the same no matter where you go. You come to Crosswalk, you get a different worship experience than if you go somewhere else. Those things are okay. But today we're not talking about just differences of opinion. We're talking about things that transcend opinion and some things do. And especially for Paul, the question is twofold. One, what hills was he willing to die on? But there's a second part of that question, which is really what hill was he interested in living on or living in? And that's really important. So we're going to get to that. And even though this idea of this, what hill are you willing to die on, is a, a kind of, you know, typical turn of phrase, we do have to ask ourselves the question, what things are we going to stand up for and what things are we going to let go? Are we not going to worry about so much? And by the way, you know this changes, right? When you're 25, there's certain things that you're just, you know, for sure about and you know is true. And then you're 35 and you're like, oh, those were dumb. Why was I thinking those were important? And then you turn 45 and you're like, I don't even remember what it was I believed in when I was 25. I'm so much older. And then you turn 55 and I have no idea what happens because I'm not that old. I'm assuming you forget where you live a lot. That's all I know. That's kind of how I, because I feel like I, I'm almost there. But um, so let us begin. We're going to jump right into scripture if we can, because we're going to be talking about an event, right? The event that happens. And this is Paul going to Jerusalem to have a conversation with Peter. Later on, he's going to talk about a conversation that he has with Peter when he is in Antioch, but it begins with this conversation he's having, this event. And it's a kind of a big deal, I'm not going to lie. And he begins like this. 14 years later, now, this is a problematic statement. The reason why it's a problematic statement is because in Acts chapter 15, we see, um, actually in the book of Acts, we see three different trips that Paul made to Jerusalem. In, in Galatians, it only seems like he made two, and the timing of this is a little wonky. There's been lots of scholarship around this. There's not a great consensus of when it happened. Some people say it was 14 years after his conversion. Some people say it was 14 years after he first went to Jerusalem. We're not going to worry about that for a couple reasons. Number one, you don't care by and large. Am I right? Let's just agree to it. Like, you want to know, but you don't really care that much. Second of all, that's not the point of the sermon. That's not the point of the, the book, of the chapter in Scripture. So we're not going to worry about it. But there are some people that come along, right? Fourteen years later, he says, I went back to Jerusalem again, this time with Barnabas, and Titus came along too. Right? So he's got kind of his entourage. He's got his crew. His crew consists of himself, Paul, who's a Pharisaic Jew, right? So part of the ruling class of the Jewish um, system. Uh, Barnabas, who is a Jewish convert, and Titus, who is a Gentile convert or a Gentile Christian. So what you have is kind of a motley crew that covers the spectrum of the early church. And, and you got to know, Paul loves Titus. 
In fact, in Titus 1.4, he says, you are my true son in our common faith. So he loves Titus. And it doesn't seem that he is concerned that Titus comes from a Gentile background. It seems that he's just absolutely fine with that. But there's a few other parties involved in this particular event. You've got the Pauline crew that I just talked about, which include Barnabas and Titus. You've got false brothers that are going to be teased out in the next few verses. And then you have the leaders in Jerusalem in which Paul is going to speak to. Now, it's good that we know the motivation for this event. Why did this meeting happen? And it's pretty simple. And he'll say it in the next verse, but he was prompted by God to call the meeting. So as you know, Paul was converted. He was kind of knocked off his horse by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus convicts him and says, why are you persecuting me? He says, I didn't know I was persecuting you. Then there's that whole long story about that conversion. But God still spoke to Paul during his lifetime and during his ministry. And so we see this in this very next verse. He says, I went there because God revealed to me that I should go. While I was there, I met privately. That's important. The church, the, the, the Jerusalem council in Acts 15 was a public council. This time he went because he just wanted to have a private meeting with the leaders in the church, considered to be leaders in the church, and shared with them the message, he says, I had been preaching to the Gentiles. I wanted to make sure that we were in agreement for fear that all my efforts have been wasted and I was running a race for nothing. There's a lot to unpack in those sentences. And and the big thing that we have to unpack is the idea that Paul knew that they were at a crossroads. There have been people who were undermining his ministry. And he realized that I can't keep doing this without the support. Even though he didn't personally need it, he had been called by God, as he said in chapter 1. He didn't personally need the affirmation of the church in Jerusalem. He knew they couldn't work at cross purposes. That wasn't going to work. And so God prompts him to go to show them the gospel that he had been preaching and to show it to them privately so they could have an off-the-record kind of conversation. Not to, again, not to get them to approve it, but he had been misrepresented to them. And he wanted to set the record straight. Have you ever been misrepresented to other people? Right? You probably have, but oftentimes you don't know it. Right? You've got people who are like, hey, you're going to meet Joe so-and-so. This is what we think about him. And they misrepresent you. And so the person you meet and you're like, this guy's kind of standoffish. I wonder why. It's probably because he heard something about you or she heard something about you. That then you start talking. And have you ever had somebody say this sentence to me? You're much different than I thought you would be. That's not a compliment. Right? That means they heard some really bad things about you. In fact, it happened to me one time. I was, I was, I was speaking somewhere, and there's another speaker there. And after I did my first talk, we were sitting down afterwards at this buffet, and we were, we were chatting. We were actually in Egypt, interestingly enough. And he comes up to me, and he goes, I got to tell you, you're very different than I thought you were. And I was like, oh. And you, I don't know what the correct response is for that. I still don't know. I don't know if it's thanks because that's not my problem, that's your problem, right? I, what the really, the correct response is, what did you hear and who told you? That's really what you need to know, right? But so I was like, oh, great. That seems like a, a okay response. I was like, great. I'm like, yeah, I heard, I heard way different things. I heard some pretty horrible things about you, which again, I don't know how to respond, 
Like, who do you hang out with? Those are horrible people. Get new friends. Or really probably the question is, who did I make angry? I wonder what I've done, because I have a tendency to do that at times. I can own that. Anyway, um, Paul wanted to set the record straight because there was, he was being misrepresented, right? And he also wanted to make sure that they weren't working at cross-purposes, wanted to make sure they were on the same page. And so that's, that's the motivation, that's the reason, and this is the event that's about to happen. And so Paul then goes to give a little color commentary, and he says this, listen, they supported me and did not even demand that my companion Titus be circumcised, though he was a Gentile. It was important that he said this to the, to the church in Galatia, because the churches in Galatia were beginning to make the Gentile Christians become circumcised so that they could get the blessing of God, right? That's important. And so Paul says, by the way, in Jerusalem, they didn't make us do that. He wanted to do that because he wanted them to know that it's not the same everywhere. So Paul references those to the others who are wanting Titus to be and the other Gentiles to be circumcised. He says even that question came up only because of some of the so-called believers there, false ones, who were secretly brought in. They sneaked in to spy on us and take away the freedom we have in Christ Jesus. They wanted to enslave us and force us to follow the Jewish regulations. Now, this is pretty serious words, right? They want to enslave us. They want to bring us back. They want to take us back from the freedom that Christ had given us. This is a big deal. And you know what this teaches me? Churches don't change. In the first century, there were sneaks and spies. Sneaks. It's weird. It's a weird word. Sneak. Sneaky. Um, yeah, people were like planted and going in and like trying to subvert what was going on. That happens in church still today. In fact, I remember like in the 80s and, and there was this group that was going through churches and they would set up surreptitiously, right, on the slide. They would set up VHS cameras, which I don't know how you do that. Those are huge cameras. But they would set them up in churches and they would clandestinely, they would, they would record preachers preaching. And if they didn't like what it was, they'd send out copies of this videotape to everybody else and say, see, this, this person, this is a heretic. Right? That happened. It still happens. If you're not sure, just go look on the internet. And now it's really easy to record because you all look like you're looking at your phones most of the time anyway. <laughs> right? So... The problem is the thing that we by and large disagree upon are things that have to do with opinions. And Paul's having a gospel conversation, so he wants to bring it out of the realm of opinion into the realm of the gospel. And he says this, listen, we refused to give in to them for a single moment. Why? Because we wanted to preserve the gospel message for you. Truth and freedom. By the way, truth and freedom, these are things, that, and they're not contrast. These things actually go together. Truth and freedom, this will be dealt with often and seriously in the book of Galatians. It's, it's really important, so keep your head on that idea. Right? So he continues. He says, listen, and the leaders of the church had nothing to add to what I was preaching. He's like, listen, they got it. We're all on the same page here. And then he says, and by the way, their reputation as great leaders, I don't care. Because God doesn't have any favorites. And the reason why I was saying that is because there was a group of Gentile Christians who were waiting for their fate in Galatia, who needed to be affirmed that they were just as much children of God as anybody who had come from the Jewish tradition as well. And so what Paul is saying here is he's trying to level the playing field, just like he does in the book of Romans, specifically in chapters 1 and chapter 2. 
But what he's saying is this, like God has no favorites. We're all the same under the gospel. That's what he's trying to preach. And then he says, instead, they saw that God had given me the responsibility of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles just as he had given Peter the responsibility of preaching to the Jews. And what are they preaching? They're preaching one gospel. One gospel. But the recognition that they had different roles and even different methods is important. But Paul wants you to understand there's one gospel. And then he says this. For the same God who worked through Peter as the apostle to the Jews also worked through me as the apostle to the Gentiles. One gospel, two apostles, not even speaking the same language sometimes. One gospel, two apostles. And then he says this. He takes it one further, which I think is awesome. He says, in fact, James, Peter, and John, who were known as pillars of the church, recognized the gift God had given me. One gospel, two apostles, three pillars. And they're all working together. They're not all saying the same thing. They're not all doing the same thing. They have different demographics that they're going after. They're talking in different languages. They're speaking to different people. All those are matters of opinion, but there's one gospel all under that. And I love what he says about pillars of the church, right? And he's talking, it's like a tent metaphor. And these pillars are tent poles that hold up the, hold up the tent for everyone who might come in. And so I want to ask you this question to make it a little personal today. Would you want to be seen as a pillar of the church? But I'm going to ask this question a little bit differently because that's an easy one to say yes to, right? Yes, I'd like to be seen as a pillar of the church. Now, let me ask this a little more personally. Do you want to be seen as a pillar of this church where you fellowship? Do you want to be seen as one of the people who holds the tent up so everyone can come in? Because if you do, you got to get involved. You can't just keep coming and visiting. You can't just keep coming and consuming what this church has to offer. You have to actually get involved. You need to serve. And I don't care where it is. There's a ton of places to serve. Whether it's at our Thursday night clinic that we're working on getting up and going together. Whether it's running a small group. Whether it's helping with, um, with hospitality. Anything to do with production. We always need services there. Whether it's helping with kids. I don't care what it is. If you're going to be a pillar of this church, you have to serve here. You can't just attend. Right? If you just attend and you attend for years, you've been a really long tourist in a place that you never asked for a visa. Like, it's okay. We'll give you a green card. You can be here. Like, you want to be a citizen. Right? Do you want to be seen as a pillar of the church? Is God calling you to that? You need to find out. And you know what? You may not agree with everything we do. Peter and Paul didn't. James and John, they didn't always agree with each other. But we understand that there's one gospel. And that's what we do together. So Paul then says, listen, there was one suggestion. There's only one suggestion that we keep on helping the poor. And he's like, which I have always wanted to do. Like, that's a stupid thing for them to suggest. But okay, the reason why is, listen, the Jerusalem church was born in poverty. Much of the churches around Asia Minor at the time were born out of poverty. And, and that's one of the hallmarks of Christianity is the way that it's worked with the poor, the way that it's worked with the sick, the way that it's worked with the infirm. It has always been a hallmark of Christianity. And the reason why Christianity has grown is because of the way that Christians have engaged in the most difficult times of crisis. If you want to see the uh, history of the Christian church and Christian compassion, look at the history of plagues and pandemics in the world. And you will see Christians there every moment working and serving and dying for those who need the help of those who need compassion. 
And we're still called to do that. And Paul says we're still called to do that. So here's what's interesting. In, um, and I'm moving quick, I understand that. When I preach this sermon for Chattanooga, which, by the way, our Chattanooga church today, today, went from a group status to a company status in the Seventh-day Adventist church. Now, we're really happy about that. I love it. Most of you are like, I don't know what that means. Right? But good. Good for you. What it means is they can now hold membership. So Chattanooga has never had membership. People have moved their membership here. They've kept their membership at other churches. They can finally hold membership. And the conference is like, oh, good for you. Which we're happy about. Like, it's a really good deal. But so they had a shorter service um, than, than we did. So when I was preaching the sermon to them yesterday for, on, for the video, I stopped right here. But I'm not going to now. So this is the seventh inning stretch. All right? Take five seconds. Stretch. Nope. Some of you. There you go. That's what I'm talking about. All right, we're back in it. That's it. That's all you get. All right? Because now we're going into a story time because Paul changes his specific, Paul changes his tone here a little bit. And he's wrapping up that part of the story. And he's about to go to the apex of the story because he's got to say some things that haven't yet been said. What he did in the first part of the book was that he created an affirmation for the gospel that he was preaching. Now he's going to brass tax it. Now he's going to get serious about it. And he's going to use the conversation that he has with Peter, which is not a great conversation. It's pretty difficult. And so he wants to make sure that there's clarity on what he is teaching and what he is preaching and why he's preaching it and the problems that are in the church in Galatia that shouldn't be there anymore, that are, that are paralleling a problem that he had had before with Peter. So he says this, but when Peter came to Antioch, I had to pose him to his face for what he did was wrong. Right? Paul's not playing. Like his tone changes. Before he's like, hey, this is all good. I went there and we, we were there and we were brothers and it was great and it was beautiful. But when Peter came to Antioch, it was time to tell him the truth. Right? It's a face-off. And these are titans in the church. Right? These are, these are huge figures in the early church. Peter, the rock. Paul, who had been called by God on the road to Damascus both ministering to different communities, but of course there's going to be overlap at times. And so he says this, when he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile believers who were not circumcised. But afterward, when some friends of James came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. Now, when we're talking about circumcision, we're not just talking about the physical act of circumcision, although, yeah. Um, what we're really talking about is the regulations that the Jewish tradition had given them. And here's the problem. Paul is speaking to an open table. He's saying, you ate with everybody. And you ate with everybody because you loved everybody, because you know the gospel was for everyone. And so you sat with anybody, even the Gentiles, God forbid, you sat with them because they're just like us. We all eat together, even though they hadn't been circumcised. And then, and then you got some peer pressure, man. You got peer pressure and you started to recidivize back into something that we know isn't true anymore. And this is, I got to tell you, that open table, I love it. And I love that the Seventh-day Adventist church, our tradition, has open communion. Right? We let anybody take the communion um, bread and wine, you know, wafer and 
juice. Um, we let anybody take it that's in our room. Like anybody can take it. It's so awesome. I think it's so great. Because it's not true in every other church. I was at a Catholic mass a few years ago. And um, when my row got up to take communion, I had not been to one. And so I was like, oh, I, oh we're all standing up. I better go. So like I'm just in line, you know, like not really sure what's going to happen. I mean, I knew what was going to happen. And I get up there and the priest looks at me and goes, no. And I was like, probably better for all of us. Now, I don't know how he knew, but he knew. He was like, nope, not you. You need to go. I was like, okay. Um, it was appropriate. Don't get me wrong. I'm not mad about it. But, um, but I love the fact that we don't have to do that. Because we understand what Paul was talking about when he was talking about an open table, right? All are welcome. And it's really important. And then he says this, listen, as a result... Other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy. And even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. He was mad. But we don't use that term hypocrisy a lot. I, we do, right? I, and I used to work with teenagers all the time. And teenagers would be like, oh, there's a lot of hypocrites in, in church. Yeah, that's probably true, right? But let's, let's define that real quick. Hypocrites are people who do not believe in something and act that way anyway, right? It's, it's acting. It's play acting. The church is actually full of sinners who miss the mark all the time. And that's what I used to try and remind teenagers when they'd be like, the church is full of hypocrites. I'm like, no, 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 no. There's a few. But the church is full of sinners. They're going to disappoint you all the time. I'm going to. That's, that's why we need church. That's why we keep coming back together and being like, mm, we probably need to keep doing this because we don't get it right all the time. Right? But I find in church there are very few people who absolutely do not believe and then act as if they do. That's what a hypocrite is. So Paul's using this word very powerfully, saying, as a result, other believers followed Peter's hypocrisy. Peter did it knowing he shouldn't do it. He knew it was wrong. He willfully moved back into a place he shouldn't have been, and he knew the gospel, and that's why Paul was pissed. Paul wasn't angry because Peter was, didn't know. Paul was angry because he did know. Right? Even Barnabas was led astray. Then it says this, When I saw that they were not following the truth of the gospel message, I said to Peter in front of all the others, Since you, a Jew by birth, have already discarded the Jewish laws and are living like a Gentile, why are you forcing, trying to make these Gentiles follow the Jewish traditions? And the, the word is so interesting because in the Greek, the word is you were... You were walking orthopedically. It's a, it's, the word is literally you were walking straight and then you decided to veer off. Why did you do that? Because you got to remember that the issue in Antioch was not just what people were eating, but it was with whom they were eating. They were excluding the Gentile Christians in order that the Jewish Christians might be seen as having more of a blessing of God. And Paul then reminds them, listen, you and I are the same. We're Jews by birth, not Gentiles. Yet we know, and this is where it gets real theological, really important, and really repeating. So stick with me. Yet we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ. He just repeated himself, and he reversed it. Not because we have obeyed the law. For no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. Are we clear on that? 
Is it repeated again and again? He's clear. See, the, the, the misnomer is that when the law was given to the Jews, the law was given to the Jews so they might be saved. But I've said this again and again, and I hope you understand it. The Jews that received the Decalogue, that received the Ten Commandments, did not receive it in Egypt so that they might keep it and be saved. They received it in Sinai after they'd already been saved. So the law was never meant to save you. The law was never meant to go, man, if you just keep it right, and this is why we have, you know, the Ten Commandments, and then we have a hedge around the law, and then we have a hedge around that, all these things that we're supposed to do. And somehow we fall into this idea, is if I do these things right, then Jesus is going to save me. Jesus didn't wait before the cross to go, did you sort it out? You got it right? Okay, I guess I'll get up there. That's specifically not what he did. See, we have it in our heads that if we keep and do the right things, then we might be saved. But you know what Paul says to that? Well, I'll just read it. He says this, but suppose we seek to be made right with God through faith in Christ, and then we are found guilty because we have abandoned the law. Would that mean that Christ has led us into sin? In other words, he's saying, is it dangerous for us to really believe in Jesus? that renders the law superfluous? At the end of time, are we then gonna be called sinners because we believed in Jesus beyond the law? And then he says, absolutely not. And for Paul, that translation is a bad translation because absolutely not is an oath. He's saying, I'll give you the veggie version, heck no. <laughs> right, you can insert other <laughs> letters in there. Paul's like, are you kidding? This is ridiculous. And then he says, rather, I'm a sinner if I rebuild the old system of law that I already tore down. For when I tried to keep the law, it condemned me. Because that's what the law does. It condemns you. So I died to the law. When I met Christ, I died to the law. I stopped trying to meet all its requirements so that I might live for God. You understand the nuance there? When all you're doing is trying to fulfill the law, you can't live for God because the law demands a lot. But when you understand that you've been saved by the grace of Jesus Christ and you don't have to worry about fulfilling the law because the law has been fulfilled in Christ, you are now freed to live truth and freedom. Because even spending your whole time trying not to sin is sin's bondage over you. If all you do is spend all your time trying not to sin, sin still wins. Because it's not about your behavior. It's about what Jesus Christ has done for you. And he says, my old self, my old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And then, he's, then he twists the knife at the end of this. And I want you to hear this. And I want you to hear this in Paul's words. I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless. The indictment there is that if you fall back into keeping the law to save you, you are treating the cross as if it does not matter. As if it is literally meaningless and worthless. And Paul says, I'm not going to do that. Peter, that's what you're doing. For if keeping the law could make us right with God, and I want you to hear this, 
then there was no need for Christ to die. The reason why this is important is that if we're not careful, we will take away the salvation that God has given us and replace it with our behavior. If you came from a perfectionist home, if you came from a legalistic home, if you came from a home who interpreted scripture, that if you don't do every single thing that the Bible says in the way that we think that you say it, you're not saved. If that's where you come from, you need to know that this is the good news of Jesus Christ. That this is the news that says you are saved beyond anything that you've done. This is the news that says your sin does not matter to God because his grace is much greater than that sin. When people talk about living in the victory of Jesus Christ, it's not the victory of your behavior, not sinning anymore. It is the victory that Jesus Christ made on the cross and through the grave. And you have now been freed to live not under the bondage of sin, but free to live for the glory of God. And to fall back into those regulations is sin management and you're not great managers. I'm not a great manager. And that's why Paul's upset at Peter because he says, Peter, you knew this. At one point you met Jesus, you talked to him. And I think Paul was really jealous of Peter if you wanna know the truth. Because Paul's like, I didn't get to spend evenings with him around the campfire talking about how much he loved us. But Peter, you knew this and you're now taking away that grace from a whole group of Gentiles and you won't even eat with them anymore? You think you're better than them? It's like, Peter, you gotta understand. Don't damn someone to hell because of a little peer pressure and because you are afraid to live in the freedom that Christ has given you. When you understand the gospel, when you recognize that the gospel has given you freedom that you've never experienced before, why in the world would you wanna go back to being under the law when all the law did was condemn you? These are Paul's words, not mine. So this is how we touch heaven, by experiencing the grace of Jesus Christ, by falling in love with him again and again, and by asking that his presence be in this place and in these hearts and in our words and in these songs every time that we sing. So stand with us and sing this song today.